Hey, it's Rebecca, and you can hear new episodes of No Limits four days early on TuneIn. Okay, so before we get to our final episode of 2017, I wanted to say thanks to all of you, to our listeners. I am sincerely so grateful to all of you. First of all, for listening, for coming back to us week after week. I love hearing from all of you, the tweets that you send me, the notes that you send to our Gmail address, the fact that so many of you have subscribed and left us notes and reviews. It does mean so much to me and your feedback and your interest in what we're building here at No Limits means so much to me and the team a wonderful team who I also owe a massive debt of gratitude to. I have Taylor Dunn and Michelle Boncardo listening on the other side of the glass here at ABC Radio, and they are incredible. They are what helps make this happen week after week, and all of you are why we do this week after week. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy this last episode of No Limits 2017. More to come in the new year. She said, if you want to be as successful as me, you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices. You're not going to be able to have children. You're really, it's going to be really hard to be married. So when I was promoted to one star, I invited her to the ceremony. And of course she came. And um, at one point I asked her to stand up. um, And I called my two daughters up and had them on both sides. And I looked at her and I said, I've been waiting 20 years to tell you you were wrong. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Today's episode is a No Limits First. You're about to meet a woman who is one of just two women who holds the military's highest rank. General Ellen Palakowski is a four-star general in the U.S. Air Force who serves as commander of Air Force Materiel Command. She has paved the way for women in the military from the time she completed her ROTC training when female uniforms were literally hard to come by. She had to go out searching for one. To her current role directing 80,000 people and managing a 60 billion dollar annual budget. So how is General Palakowski changing the game? You're about to find out. General Ellen Palakowski, welcome to No Limits. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. It is an honor. Thank you for your service. Thank you. And you have an outstanding resume. Four-star general, one of just five women, I understand, to make it to the ranks where you are in the Air Force. How did you end up pursuing the career in the Air Force? No one in my family was really involved in the military. My dad was a a World War II slash just after World War II vet and had gone to school in the GI Bill. But I grew up during the Vietnam War and I saw all the pictures on TV and I lived with friends that had older brothers that were being drafted. and, And when I was in high school, I was in the marching band, and one spring day they said, come on, you, 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 and you, just picked a half a dozen of us, we're going out to this, this, there's a POW returning, and we're going to go play on his front lawn. So I went out with my trombone and the rest of the crowd, and we played, and I watched this hall play out, and it was just fascinating to me, um, just trying to understand what, what motivated somebody to go and do and for the sacrifices that that man did. 
And so I joined ROTC when I got to college, more out of curiosity, just wanted to see what it was like. And What was your first impression of ROTC? Well, it was... um, Initially, I was a little bit taken aback because there were, first of all, there really weren't any other women involved, you know, and I had come out of high school. I was going to an engineering school. And so it was the whole experience was new to me being essentially most of the time the only woman in the room. But with the ROTC cadets, um, I was struck by the fact that they all knew each other really well. They were friends, in some ways even deeper than friends. Um, and and it was that feeling of belonging that uh, kept me going back. When you were there, the first year as a freshman, you couldn't qualify for the ROTC scholarship because you're a woman, because the scholarship applied to pilots who could only be men at the time. Exactly right. When I started ROTC in 1974, uh, there were very few opportunities for women in the in the military as officers or in enlisted for that matter, and there weren't very many women. Period, and so you couldn't be in most of the career fields were not open to women, and the only way you could get an ROTC scholarship in 1974 was to be a pilot candidate. And since women couldn't be pilot candidates, I did not have a scholarship. So I actually worked in a supermarket. Um, to pay my way through college. Now, by the time I received, got to be a junior, I actually did get an ROTC scholarship because they decided to open up scholarships to engineers in addition to to pilots and others. So, it was a it was a time where um, I would say that the Air Force was still kind of exploring what it was what what to do with women and and how we could play. Uh, you know, another thing that happened is. Um, when I showed up and they wanted to get me uniforms, they didn't have uniforms for me. So wow. I had to get in the in a car in the t- car with one of the the NCOs that um, was the radar O'Reilly, if you will, of the detachment, and take a ride down to McGuire Air Force Base, which is in Central Jersey, and go into the clothing sales store with him and and pick try on these clothes and. I didn't know which way they were supposed to be worn. <laughs> right. I had never done it, and he didn't know much more either. Um, so off we went, and I came back with the uniforms. But it was uh, every step of the way, it was a, a new adventure for me and in some ways a new adventure for them. Did you think of yourself at the time as an outsider? There were times when people were would act surprised, and then I would say, oh, well, well maybe this is unusual. But I never thought of it that way because that was not something that my parents ever said oh no you can't be you know you can't go into a traditional male uh, career like engineering or you can't go into the military because there aren't very many women in there and in fact being a woman actually helped me get into the air force at that time because my eyes were not good enough to get a commission when i was a freshman and in fact they told me oh you're not going to be qualified to be commissioned and I said, they said, why don't you just come back next year and we'll see. And I said, no, you know, I want to really press this. Can I, can, I, uh, can I get in? And they said, no, can't do it because we were downsizing after the Vietnam War. So they weren't 
actively recruiting to get a lot of people into the military. Um, and then I, uh, I even wrote to my congressman. So I got a letter back from my congressman saying, hey, I'm sorry, but we can't help you. Um, but then um, the professor of aerospace studies, who was the head boss of the ROTC detachment, came up and he goes, you know, I was a really good student. I had a 4.0. And he goes, you know, I've been talking to the, the folks in headquarters, and they said, we're really interested in increasing the number of women, so why don't you request a waiver for her? And so they actually went in and processed this paperwork, which a month earlier they said, no, we're not doing that. Sorry. you know. And, and as a result of that, they did grant me the waiver. And then when I think back, that was... You know, in 1975, and I wouldn't be here today if they hadn't gone back and and asked the question. And in a way, that was a diversity program. Your official title is Commander U.S. Air Force Material Command, and I want to get into what that job means, what the what the works of that job are. But you also have this fascinating background in technology and science. You studied chemical engineering as an undergraduate. Through the ROTC program, you went on to get a doctorate in chemical engineering. Plus, you're one of just two women currently holding the military's highest rank, and you've been nationally recognized for your leadership in science and technology. So in your role as Commander Air Force Material Command, you're at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. Right. You employ 80,000 people. You manage $60 billion annually. And you're really making the decisions and looking at the technology that the Air Force uses. We do. We do. Uh, for that $60 billion, we do a lot of things. And and first of all, I also want to point out that we consider ourselves the cost conscience of the Air Force. We spend a lot of money. And so if you talk to anybody in Air Force Materiel Command, they will tell you that I constantly say, look, every dollar we spend that we don't need to spend is one less that we have to do the things we need to do. So we are very, very conscious of that. So what we do, everything from the basic research to the engagement with the the big contractors to make sure that when we order a brand new fighter jet or a brand new um, tanker or we get what we paid for. So we have that management of those big contracts. We do all the testing. As things are developed to make sure that they actually work the way the contractor said they're going to work. And then we do all the depot repair work on those airplanes. And then we also are responsible for all the civil engineering that happens around the Air Force. We even uh, are responsible for the chow halls. We run the program that defines um, what what food is served. What's on the menu. And, and, and all of that. <laughs> We're involved in that. Is it organic? Um, we act interesting enough over uh, we've had an effort called the food transformation program that is actually focused on that just as we as a, you know as a society yeah, society's have, moving have in that direction in that direction right and I we even own the museum the museum of the Air National Museum of the Air Force so we like to say and we own the boneyard if you've heard of it down in Arizona right uh, which we prefer to call the air power reservoir by the way as opposed to a boneyard but <laughs> So so we literally have everything from the new technologies to keeping the history of the old ones in in the command. When you moving up over the, over the years inside of the Air Force, how do you feel 
people, the American people, have treated you? Is it the same today as it was when you started? Oh, my goodness, it is so totally different. Um, You know, when I started RTC in 1974, particularly the first couple of years, well, if 1974, you know, we left Vietnam, we were out of Vietnam, um, but the veterans were home, and it was not, there were no welcoming arms. And so it would not be uncommon for me when I took the bus to, to school um, for me to hear cat calls and comments um, as I was um, walking up to the campus. When I was in graduate school, I, I didn't wear the uniform, but I was at Berkeley. And that was during the time when President Carter reinstated the registration for the draft. And I saw the demonstrations. And, uh, in fact, the, you know, the Army ROTC cadets got locked in their armory with protesters out, outside. Um, so you can imagine the first time after Desert Storm when I was walking through an airport and somebody walked up to me and shook my hand and thanked me for my service. It, it was just a totally different experience. We went from the military being viewed as almost um, ostracized, you know, being, if you will, blamed for for what happened in the Vietnam War um, to being one of the most respected professions in the country. And we went from, uh, even though there was no draft when I was there, but there was still this feel, you know, this we were still experimenting with an all-volunteer force when I first started. And now we thrive as an all-volunteer force. Every single person in uniform today has volunteered to do that. And that just makes a huge difference. The, the, the other part, now that's the real positive side. But I worry somewhat because of the percentage of the U.S. citizens that, that are in the military is in the single digits. And, it, and there are many places in this country where people can go their whole lives and never see someone in uniform. Because mm-hmm. we tend to, uh, in some ways, it's become a little bit of a family business. There are a lot of people that are in the military because their parents were, which is, which is fine. But there's many, many parts of our, of our society that people never even experience um, knowing somebody. In contrast to, as I described when I was growing up, you know, my friends had brothers that were, you know, going to Vietnam. Almost all of our parents were World War II right. veterans. Right. Almost everybody. My dad was uh, part of the Japanese occupation force. And our government, Senate, the Senate and the Congress, although, you know, were had most of them had some level of, of military experience. Although we're starting to see more and more of current day veterans go into that form of public service and increasing the numbers of uh, um, a little bit of an increase. But it's just... It, it went from feeling isolated um, from the American public, even though I think all of us that were in ROTC and in those early years felt like we were doing service to the country, um, to now where 
you know, so many people come up to me and thank me for my service and, and want to outreach and do good, you know, and help veterans and to, to help those of us in uniform. Uh, it's just a totally different environment. What do you think the biggest misconception is? About the military? Yes. More from our discussion after a quick word from our sponsor. Over 3 million businesses use Indeed.com for hiring. And independent research shows five times more hires are made through Indeed than any other job site. By creating the easiest, most effective hiring experience, Indeed helps businesses find great new people every day. Right now, Indeed is giving new users a $50 credit to post a sponsored job on the world's number one job site. Claim your credit at Indeed.com slash offer. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. What do you think the biggest misconception is? About the military? Yes. I believe that there are a lot of people that um, believe that there's a lot of risks to be in the military, that there's a great, great risk that you're going to, um, that, that you're, that people are going to, that their sons or daughters are going to join the military and they're not going to come back. They're not going to, they're going to be killed in combat. Um, and in reality, if you look at um, the number of people, a uh, uh, number of of, um, of our our casualties compared to the number of people in the military, um, it's very very little. But yet, there's this concern that you know, and it, and and it is true that when you put on this uniform, you basically uh, you sign a contract, and you know, in that contract is the you know. The willingness to to give your life for your country, uh, but I think um, I think people overestimate just how often that happens. It happens as we see, but it also happens. People people die f- far more often in this country from other things than from serving in the military. What was the call like? The four star general. You find out. Oh. Um, it was, uh, I was actually, um, preparing to run the Air Force half marathon the next day. And so I get this call, um, and he says, Hey, um, this was General Mark Welch, the previous. He says, Look, and I talked to Secretary James, and she's made her decision because, as you know, we work for, and he said, And, and we're going to nominate you to be the next Air Force Materiel Command commander, which comes with the four star, you know, four star generals, it's, specific jobs and so I really I mean I I knew I was being considered but never in my wildest dreams and I just sat there and of course at this point um, this is the beginning of the process so he's like can't tell anybody yet mm-hmm. um, so I'm in this hotel room <laughs> you, know, you could tell you can tell your family but I'm in this hotel room all by myself and I'm jumping up and down and I'm like <laughs> And I don't normally have a glass of wine before I run a half marathon, but I had a glass of wine that night. <laughs> before the half marathon. I did. Wow. I did. I had a half I had a glass of wine that night to celebrate <laughs> as my little mini celebration. That is very cool. Right. What's the most frustrating part of the job today? The most frustrating job part of the job is knowing um what you want to do and the best way to do it and finding that there is bureaucracy that stands in the way. That I think is the hardest part when you can see it and this is the right thing to do. And 
And the answer is, even at my level, to say, no, and I'm an impatient person, and time is ticking, and I know what we need to do, and there's people's out there that need this capability, and that's that gets frustrating to me. Has that changed over time, or is that consistent, that there always is that bureaucracy and red tape? Well, it has changed in terms of that I'm now more in the position of the person that has to battle their way through that. <laughs> yep. Um, whereas when I was a younger experimenter, a lot of that, I just knew things were delayed. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're not going to get this this week. Yeah. We're not going to. I mean, just here's an example. We, right now, we don't have a budget for um, 2018, and our year starts on the 1st of October. So we're on a continuing resolution with the Congress, which basically says you can spend what you had last year. But we so can you imagine yourself when you're trying to work on one of these projects and you know what needs to be done, but you don't know how much money you're going to have this year. And so you have to decide, well, I'm going to have to delay the start of that because I don't want to start it if I don't know that I'm going to have the money to do it. And and that that that's just an example of some of the the challenges. And when you um, when you look at the consequences of that. You know, you delay things and then it takes longer. What are the consequences? Put it in real terms for people, because I think that's I've covered the economy now for years and we've had the fiscal cliff and we've had the continuing resolution where there's not a real budget, but it's a short term stopgap. And people hear it on the news and they hear that it's bad, but they don't experience it like you do. Mm -hmm. So in real terms, what is the cost on your end? Okay, well, let me uh, let me give you an example that maybe people would understand. We are about 2,000 pilots short. Now, it takes a year plus to train a pilot. And one of the things that's critical to being able to train pilots is that their airplanes work, the ones they're going to train in, right? And so uh, my command, Air Force Materiel Command, is responsible for keeping those planes flying. And if I don't have budget and there's a plane that needs to have an overhaul, because it needs to be, it's been flying for so many hours, and so we got to, you know, tune up the engine, change the oil, that sort of thing. Without the budget, I can't, I have to delay doing that. So we have the consequence that that airplane is now just going to exasperate the fact that I don't have pilots to put into the cockpit because their training is going to be delayed if they don't have planes to fly in. So the plane would be grounded. In that case, it wouldn't still be out flying right, even because, though it didn't have the... Because it would be considered unsafe. Right. Because those things don't get done. And if it was a private company, there's no way that that would happen because a private company wouldn't wouldn't be willing to waste the money mm-hmm. by not flying the plane. Right, They'd find a way to money. solve it. Exactly. Exactly right. And we, and we can work really hard to come back. It's like we can go back to the Hill and say, hey, we really need to do this. Can you give us an exception? Uh, and then there's the consequences in some of the bigger programs. Uh, for example, it, we get money to buy airplanes um, every year, and we can only buy them if we actually have the full money. You can't buy a half an airplane. So I can't go to Boeing, for example, if I'm buying – and we're buying new tankers. We desperately need new – new. these are aerial refueling. They refuel airplanes and flying. I can't go to Boeing and say, I only want, I'm going to give you the money for half of an airplane, um, and when I get the rest of it, I'll 
I'll give you the because I have to by law I have to buy a whole airplane, and so and if I don't have the full amount of money, I can't buy that plane. Maybe they could give you a discount. (laughs) They could. Do they ever do that? We we negotiate. Yeah, we negotiate. But in this case, um, what happens then is if I don't flow money to if they don't get the money to buy the air for me to to build the airplanes, they have workers. That now don't that they have to continue to pay because they know them that it's coming right, and so now that airplane's going to cost me more. Yes. What for you has been the toughest lesson along the way, along this journey? Uh, I think for me, um, the the hardest thing has been to make sure that I. I don't get so focused on executing what needs to be done that I forget about the people that are getting, that are working on it. It's so important for me to remind myself just the same way for me when I made that decision to stay in that I, I wanted to be Ellen mom, Ellen wife, Ellen engineer, Ellen officer. And sometimes I get so intense about needing to get something done uh, that I forget that the people that are doing it, they have that, they have a set of goals and targets. And it is just as important to me to care about those other things for them as it is to care about the execution of the mission. And it's a lesson I have to remind myself over and over again. Such valuable advice. What's the worst advice you've received? The worst advice I ever received was be told that I shouldn't, I couldn't have a family and be successful as a woman in the Air Force. Who told you that? When I was a first lieutenant, I stationed in in Sacramento, uh, there was a General Wilma Vaught. A one-star general. She came out to visit us. Um, she came out to visit the base. She was giving a speech about something. I don't know what. And she volunteered to meet with the female officers, the women officers that were on the base. This was 1983. Uh, so all three of us met with her. There were only three of us. <laughs> um, and she she talked to us and about you know some of her challenges and what she did. And she said, if you want to be as successful as me, you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices. You're not going to be able to have children. You're really, it's going to be really hard to be married. And I left there upset and angry, to be honest with you. Because remember what I told you was my, who Ellen was. And Ellen was a mother, or going to be a mother at that point. I didn't have any children. And Ellen was a wife. And, and I was angry that the guys that were sitting next to me doing the same job as me, they could have a family, so why couldn't I? So I remember saying to myself, you know, I'd love to be able to prove her wrong. Um, I got to know her again later in my career after she retired. Um, so when, and I never brought this up with her because I'm, I know she didn't remember. And she's, by the way, a wonderful woman and a role model for me. Um, she's still alive today, and um, 
She's the one that she 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 was one that organized the women's memorial down in Arlington and carried that on her back for many years. So she's an amazing role model and woman. So when I was promoted to one star, I invited her to the ceremony, and of course she came because, you know, it, it, when I made one star, it was still fairly rare to have a woman make general, and especially so she came. And um, at one point, I asked her to stand up. Um, and I called my two daughters up and had them on both sides. And I looked at her and I said, I've been waiting 20 years to tell you you were wrong. And I gave her a dozen roses and we hugged. And I said, these are the real stars in my life. Wow. But uh, she, uh, but when you look at what she, the environment that she had to work through, this was when, uh, you know, it wasn't many years before I came, went to ROTC, that women, when they got pregnant, were discharged. So you couldn't have children and stay on active duty. You know, joint spouses were, you know, joint spouse assignments, which is what we call it today, were essentially non-existent. So it was, I, I like to believe that I was able to do it because I was standing on sho- the shoulders of, of women like her who, who stood, stood in there and demonstrated to the military that we could be contributors, that we could play a role, that we could balance family and work and, and deliver what the nation needed from us. And so many stand on your shoulders today. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you for joining us on No Limits today. All right. Thank you for having me. General Ellen Palakowski. Thank you. And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week comes from Naperville, Illinois. Michelle Hoderman is the designer and creator of Jewelry Sculptures by Michelle. Michelle grew up with a love of jewelry and fashion. She even worked part-time at a local jewelry store when she was in high school. And she learned about the craft of ceramics, painting, glazing, overlays from her dad, something that would later inspire her to choose porcelain and ceramic clays as her jewelry medium. Michelle started out studying fashion merchandising in college, but later earned her degree in criminal justice sciences. She went on to be a caseworker for the developmentally disabled and mentally ill, and then spent a few years managing work injury claims, all the while building her jewelry business, designing and selling along the way. Michelle was able to really take the plunge with her business using the savings from her job and her growing jewelry sales, which was helped by using social media. She also had zero credit card debt, very good, and had built up a network becoming an executive member of Fashion Group International's Chicago division. She says that one of her biggest obstacles has been the competition in jewelry sales. There's a lot out there, and she's had to figure out a way to stand out in that crowded marketplace. She said she's done it through her unique process and designs, as well as custom-made pieces. She's made and sold thousands of different designs over the years, and coming up in 2018, Michelle will be a featured designer for Santa Fe Fashion Week. Congratulations. That's awesome. If she could go back in time and give herself a piece of advice, Michelle says she would never allow others' financial fears about her decisions get in the way of her vision. Congratulations, Michelle. I wish you and your jewelry sculptures by Michelle continued success.
Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, send me your nomination to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. You can also send your career questions to that email address because we're doing once a month a bonus episode of No Limits where I'm answering those questions. I love hearing from all of you. I love reading your emails, so definitely keep them coming. And of course, if you like what you heard here, don't forget to give us a nice review. We read all of them. We appreciate them so much. And remember, that's how people find out about No Limits, because of your reviews, because of the things you post on social media, which, by the way, across the board, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, I am Rebecca Jarvis, so you can shoot me a note there as well. And I want to give a shout out to the team here at ABC who helps make this happen week after week. My wonderful producer, Taylor Dunn, our fabulous editor, Michelle Boncardo, my wonderful research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the rest of the team here at ABC Radio, Elizabeth Russo, David Rind, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. We appreciate all of the support. Have a great week. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.